The Home Show with Sinead Ryan on News Talk. On this week's Home Show podcast, architect Hugh Wallace shares his letter to Santa on the housing crisis. If you're looking for a new sofa, we have lots of hints and tips for you. Dr Rory Hearn is giving me his take on the new vacant property refurbishment grant and show regular Neve Marr will be talking all things mugs. Now, are you all over the Christmas? Is the tree in the recycler? Are the decorations back in the attic? Well, I couldn't wait. I was largely spurred on by the fact that my hubby had an extra day off work, more than I did. So I made sure he did all the heavy lifting by the time he got returned to the office. Now, one of the things we did, along with restoring the house back to normal, or what can be considered normal, was a cull of the mug press. Now, do you have a mug press? You must have. We got gifted several mugs as Christmas gifts and they're all a lot nicer than some of the ones we had. So there was nothing else to be done since they couldn't all fit. They all came out, including the best dad, the 10K in 2012 and the old souvenir ones from a variety of cities, which were never used because they're very pretty to look at, but they're not very practical and they're not a mug I like to drink from. So we have a slimmer, tidier press, but it got me thinking about how many mugs we accumulate in our lives. I mean, none of us has a beautifully curated, Instagrammable mug press where everything matches and it's the right colour. Or do you? I'm interested. If you do, I'd love to see it. Throw it up to me on Instagram and I'll share it. Uh, What I'd love to know is the one mug that you couldn't bear to lose or break and then the one maybe that you'd wish you'd drop from a height and would crack all by itself so you don't have to break it. Uh, I certainly had two in mind for that and one of them did find their way uh, tragically onto the floor and into the bin which is what I'd hoped to do for a very long time. Text me 53106 show me your mugs send them along to me and I'll be getting some mug related inspo later on the show so do stay tuned for that. We've tons coming up on our first 2023 home show and you're very welcome along. Now, a few weeks ago, the well-known and award-winning architect, television personality and founding partner of Douglas Wallace Consultants, Hugh Wallace, wrote a letter to Santa via the Irish Times asking for the housing crisis to be fixed. To see if it was answered, he joins me now in studio. Welcome, Hugh. Happy New Year. And a very happy New Year to you. Now, this letter to Santa... Yeah. Um, ...covered lots and lots of things, but tell me what it was in relation to housing that you think only Santa can now fix? Well, Santa needs to be a strategic infrastructure body that has role and responsibility for Ireland, Inc. And then it filters down to the councils, to the areas to deliver. But it's under one body. At the moment, you have a bizarre situation. For example, the delivery of houses. Is it the council? Is it the government? Is it private developers? Is it the 500 housing bodies? And they're all competing with one another, believe it or believe it not, Mm. in terms of delivering housing. And we must have an overall strategy in view. And we also have to remember there are 80,000 more people in Ireland every year, notwithstanding the refugee crisis. On top of that, there's 80,000 more people who require... 24,000 houses. So n- too many Indians and not enough chiefs, is that it? That's it. And 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 so you have a plethora of, you know, delivery. You have the vacant houses. You have the Living City Initiative. You have Rural Ireland Initiative. You have the uh, a whole load of initiatives, which are all government knee-jerk reactions to situations. We have to stop that. We have to have an overall strategy which says this is what Ireland is going to look like in 20 years time. This is how we're going to achieve sustainability. This is genuinely how we're going to have public transport. This is how we're going to deliver health for an ageing population. This is where wind farms are going to go and they will be in your backyard and that's life because they have to go somewhere. I'm thinking... The government would probably say we have that. It's called the National Development Plan. Yeah, but that's, it's not being delivered. It's a headless chicken. So an important document, but there's nobody in charge of it? No. No, and then... Even the, see, Department of, the Department of Housing, we have no. a minister, we yeah, have a junior no. minister, we have on board Planola. You have the Taoiseach. I mean, the Taoiseach was talking yesterday about things being unacceptable in our health system. But 
you know, it's fine. It's not acceptable to be unacceptable. You know, all everything we know was and where we are in our hospital systems, aging population. This is 20 years ago. We knew all this information. But because of the cycle of politicians being five years, it's only about kicking the ball down the road. Mm. And we must get out of that. We have to. When the state was founded, the original civil service was our government in a funny way. The government said, this is what we'd like to do. The civil service went and did it and took responsibility So and put their, you know, they put, if you like, mm. their neck on the line. So if you had this kind of overarching strategic executive, I, I presume for want of another word, and uh, it was based presumably somewhere centrally, would presumably be, okay, fine, okay, Athlone. But, but would the argument not be that each local authority would say, or each councillor council would say, look, we know our local area best. We know the people, we know the demographics, we know all this. We know where you can build, where you can't build, why you should do this, that or the other. And we're trying to build in the roads and the cycle lanes and the bus corridors and all that kind of stuff. Is it fair to assume that you could have one executive that that should be in charge of all of that? Absolutely, because one executive is saying, here is the national plan for everything. Hospital schools, sustainability, getting towns and villages working again. That filters down to to Connacht, the regions. That filters down to the council and they have to deliver. So it's like a visionary. Correct. No, it is mud is teeth. Vision. We have enough vision. You know, if you, if you go and read the report, you know, um, twenty forty or whatever. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Okay. Read read inside that and read the appendices. So there are about forty documents behind that, which are all reports and everything else, and shove in national pa- spatial strategy. Do you remember that mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. two thousand and seven or six? And you couldn't build shopping centres anywhere, and where we're going to have regionalisation and everything else. That all got put in the bin. And we're great at producing these amazing reports. And it's sort of, well, that's gone off my desk now. I don't have to deal with it. Mm. But yet, Hugh, like we have to be fair as well. A lot has been delivered. I mean, during COVID, I was astonished to see uh, how quickly and efficiently a lot of councils, particularly where I live in Dublin, building cyclopaths that had been asked for for decades and nothing had arrived and suddenly here they were. Bridges in parks and, you know, things that mind. got done because the traffic was off the roads and yeah, there was look money at the there. Now. Look, at, look, just think about the traffic. So if you live, I've been unfortunate to live out in Tonski, you're doomed for life <laughs> because the cycle path has been put in on either side with little sort of concrete upstands. So now you have literally one lane of traffic and the bus is now stuck in the traffic jam with everyone else. And on top of that, you have a car who then decides he wants to turn right. Doomed. So, Well, you're, you're going doomed to, if you're a driver. Isn't the whole point to get people into the cycle lanes? Feeling doomed enough that they go out and buy a bike. This. It rains in Ireland. There's a balanced approach. I'm not going to cycle 12 miles in and out and work. I don't have the opportunity of getting on a bus and I should. So if we're going to talk about sustainability, ban all traffic in Renla between four o'clock and six o'clock in the evening and ban it between eight o'clock and ten Well, we've done it around morning. College Green. No, There's no, but that should be in Renla. Let's get people on public transport. Let's have the discussion about true sustainability because all we're doing is fudging it. We're just fudging it as a society. Let's be totally honest. If you go and look at bus times on a lot of the buses, they've increased because of cycle lanes. Now, we don't discuss that because that wouldn't be PC. But that's the truth. So if you're going to put in cycle lanes, ban the cars. Right. Well, that's a very dramatic approach to to infrastructure. Do we not need everything running all at the same time? In balance. We're not in balance. You know, nothing's in balance in this country. Isn't this a cultural thing, though, Hugh? I mean, it's incredibly difficult to get people out of their cars. There's been a huge uptick in people buying electric cars, but now they want two of them outside (laughs) in their driveway. It's very, very difficult because people do not trust the system. (laughs) I'm just saying to you, you know, we, we have this fudge about sustainability. So why don't people live in our little towns and villages? In Boris and Austria or Barcelona, or sorry, I don't mean, but down down the country. 
Because the bus arrives at 10 and a bus arrives at 3. Well, that what other way do you do it? You can't have a bus stop at the end of every rural road. No, in the but you should have in between villages. You should have, you know, the little buses. The Golink. Yeah. Golink. Yeah, the go- and, yeah. And let's be totally honest, we need to be much more thinking outside the box. Yeah. So Ireland should be the first country to have uh, car-driven electric cars, the whole of the country. Then that transforms transport because all of a sudden, I, in fact, I will no longer own a car. Because all I'll do is type in, I want a car to go from A to B and a car will arrive. And we have to have that vision. And that's doable today. The reason there aren't driverless cars has to do with insurance. Yeah, and Tesla. That's all. No, no, (laughs) that is all. That is, Geneva can't decide how we should drive cars. But I'm just saying we need to have a conversation about her with ourselves about what is green, sustainable, the future of Ireland, the fact that I will have to have a wind farm in my back garden, that there should be a road around Galway. That's a, that's These are realities. So do you think there's too much consultation? Oh. Too many carrots? Oh, too many carrots, too many people to get involved, too many... It's just we have got to dictate down for the benefit of society. Uh, in general, you are going to have to do CPOs, oh, oh, CPO orders and unfortunately Mrs Murphy will have to move out of her house and be compensated correctly because we need to have proper development that is sustainable and future proof and, yet, and we can't who, be building sorry and we who, can't be building dog box apartments Who decides that though Hugh? Because I mean you, you're talking there about the politicians the yes national, your strategic national, board there but, we go. but you have um, we, we did it for health Okay, so everything was moved out of the Department of Health into this executive called the HSE. And And yet people are saying that's not working properly. It's all falling apart. It's just been funded. So let's... We're throwing more money at that than we have ever, ever thrown at. The problem... And housing. Yeah, but the issue we have is is it's a knee-jerk reaction. So it's not... Why are all the hospitals in Dublin? Like in the city centre. Like... The, you know, there's, there's oh, just... Oh, no, don't mention the war. Are you going to go back to the James site? No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just saying to you, like, we we have... So we're going to spend, in my opinion, three billion on the children's hospital when it's finished. Mm. Now, the government will be out and the next one can take the fall. But that's disgraceful. And and the fact that there isn't a road and a, and a train between Cork and Limerick, a dual carriageway between... Cork and Limerick is bizarre in this day and age. And they are decisions that are being opposed locally, but they are a national requirement. So you're talking about this idea and maybe what what I think you're saying is that if we want to make the cities less congested and allow for all that, you have to put the infrastructure there first and then people will so build it and they will come. Is that your, your, your argument on that? Twofold. We should just have have. Uh, a dictator? Yes, you need a good <laughs> okay. dictator here because what should actually happen is you say we're going to to have double the amount of buses in Dublin for a month and we're going to stop cars in the stop following areas mm. and make the change. Didn't Damon Ryan try to do that? Wasn't that his policy? We'll have these traffic free days. I remember yeah, Shane sh- Ross years ago paying for the toll barriers out of his own money to be lifted just to watch the flow of traffic going through. So is there an argument for maybe just trialling stuff and, and being yeah, brave but that's about it? it? Yeah, yeah. But we need to be brave, particularly about public transport. And the idea, like there's a train service which nobody uses out of Tonmel because there's three trains a day each way yeah. on a track that's Well, sometimes stuff abandoned. has to be subsidised because, you know. No, no, you ha- but why isn't there a train every hour? Like mm. if you live if you live in, in um, Athenry, you can't get to Galway to go to work in the morning because there's no train. Mm. Like, what? What? We like, used to we used to have so much more in terms of that rail infrastructure for sure, and a lot of those lines could be brought back, and well, they have been on Navan and no, you know the M3 and, and now cycle right. So, uh, Hugh, do you fancy yourself as the dictator in charge? Oh, absolutely! <laughs> Abs- girl, let's go for it, girl. I am <laughs> on for that. Well, I cannot finish on any other note except to say that I read your letter to Santa very carefully. I'm not sure if he came to you for Christmas, <laughs> but there was one other item that you did ask for. Oh. So 
I will finish oh, by gifting you. Oh, you're very kind. A, a chocolate, chocolate orange. Oh, I'm spoiled. And you can ponder that on your cycle home <laughs> while you're while you're planning your your dictatorship for the future. As always, Hugh Wallace, a new series. Uh, yeah, well, home of the year. Sixth, about 16th, 17th of February. Oh, all excited. Oh, all right. And we're doing uh, the Great House Revival at the moment and we're looking for a couple of more entries. Okay, all right. Well, uh, if anybody wants to have a look at that and everybody does because it's always uh, a winner on telly. Well, then, Hugh Wallace, we'll be looking forward to seeing you on our screens next month. And thanks a million for joining us on The Home Show this morning. Lovely to be here. Now, a good sofa is generally not cheap, even in the sales. So if you're in the market for one at the moment and you want to do your research and make sure you get bang for buck, well, you need to know about style and shape and colour and trends and all of that. Sinead Considine, co-founder of the Interiors Project, has done all the groundwork for us and she joins me now. Sinead, you're very welcome along to the show. Thank you very much. So delighted to be on your show. Now, uh, start off with the basics, if you would, uh, with us, Sinead, because a sofa is an expensive piece of kit and you're going to have it for a very long time and use it a lot uh, for, for the most part. So talk to me a little bit about kind of the first principles of going out to get a new one. Well, I suppose the first thing you need to do or to look at is like look at the size of your room and um and what you're actually what's good, what's the functionality going to be for the sofa like is it is it going to be in a family room um with kids jumping up and down or will it be in a good room so um there i suppose the two first things to consider um and then the what kind of style of sofa like would you want a modular sofa a corner sofa a two seater a three seater so there's lots of um different criteria and also do you have pets do you um like do you need the material to be bulletproof? You know, um, are you happy with the cream couch? Yeah, there's lots of different decisions to be made before mm. you go out and buy. Mm. I've seen a lot of ads recently for uh, sofas, these modular sofas, as you as you call them, which are kind of sectional, and some some of them have kind of a long, almost daybed type of arm on them where you can kind of sprawl and watch the telly, and then bits that you can kind of fit in. And it always seems to me that it's very easy to get that wrong and it can block off a room, it can block off light, the leg of it could be on the wrong end. Is it a good idea maybe to measure out in your room, uh, on the ground maybe, how, how big this thing is going to be before you before you buy? Because you don't want to completely taking over your living room. No, absolutely. And the, the, I think the, the great things about the modular sofas now is that they're so versatile. And, you know, people are looking for more flexibility from their sofas in terms of like style and size and configuration. And so with the modular, it's like kind of like a shape shifter sofa that you can move. You know, it doesn't have to be right or left aligned. It can be moved right or left. You can take pieces out. You can move it, you know, instead of an ottoman, you can have an ottoman as part of it. So it's actually very, very versatile. So it's actually a good start if, if, you know, if you want the L, but you're not sure about the L or, you know, you can move it around all different ways. So it, it's a really good sofa, you know, if, if, if you have a family and, you know, you want comfort. Now, a lot of those sofas, though, do like they look absolutely perfect. So perfect. They have no dint, no squish, no squash in them. My sofa is <laughs> very old. It has plenty of that over the years. And I love that kind of idea of being able to sink into a sofa and it nearly envelops you. Whereas other people like that smooth, flat foam look is there a right or wrong with that mm, so well so if you want your sofa to look perfect all the time you need to go with foam um if you love just if you just want to fall into your sofa you go with feather but there you can actually um the feather does look really messy if if, if you don't plop it up every day um, so I think the the best one is to go for a foam wrapped with feather um, down and it's it's really comfortable. It holds its shape and, you know, it's really comfortable and messy as, as well when you sit in it. OK, the best of both worlds. Right. OK, yeah. now Sinead, talk to me about what's on trend this year in terms of interior design. What are people going for? What's what's fashionable? Well, the sculptural sofas are still um, really, really fashionable. I think they're going to keep going this year, you know, with the beautiful curves and 
you can get them in circular or the kidney bean shaped. Um, they were very popular last year and um, they just look beautiful. Now, they wouldn't be the most comfiest sofas to sit on, but they do look gorgeous. Mm. Um, with regards to fabrics like boucle, I know boucle was in last year. Um, it's it's still here this year um, and there's so many new colours available in it and it's just so, it brings warmth to the house and it's just, it's just so cosy like a big teddy bear texture. It um, is, it's lovely and comfortable and you can kind of sink into it like you're sinking into a, a blanket nearly, you know, blanket. and it's such yeah, a world exactly. away from <laughs> leather, which was so popular for years and years and years, but it's cold and, you know, sticky. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's not very comfortable to sit on now. Um, but the boucle is like sitting into a teddy. It's gorgeous. Okay, and what are we moving away from now? What would you be kind of not on trend if you if you bought? I, I know that you're not a big fan of the matchy-matchy sets, the sofa yeah, and the, the two-seater. Set, the sofa and the sets are kind of, yeah, they're moving away from that a lot, actually. So it's just the matchy-matchy sets, but you can always get like a sofa and two completely different armchairs, kind of a mix and match. And if you, you know, mix up textures and patterns and colours, that's very on trend at the moment. And you can do that if you want to bring some um, colour into your into your room. Like it's lovely if you want to have have a block of colour on a couch and then, you know, patterns on the, on the, the, the chairs. Tie it all together. Uh, now, sustainability, of course, uh, the biggest trend of all. And we are trying to be careful with our fabrics and our fillings and all of that. So tell me how the sofa market can help in, in that regard. What are customers looking for? Well, a lot a lot of the suppliers now are like making sustainable living choices um, within the furniture industry. So they are like, well, I suppose... There's two things. If you if you want to get, um, you can get a bespoke sofas made, which will be kind of from a small your smaller suppliers. So that means you're helping, you know, your local um, companies. Um, you have your own choice of fabric, so you can go for um, sustainable fabrics. You know, you can reupholster, which is a lot of people are doing now, um, and. Or else you can just buy from the rack, which isn't very sustainable at all. So mm. I suppose there's a few decisions to be made before you go out and, and do your, make your purchase. Indeed. And I suppose probably the most stain, sustainable thing of all is if you're buying a sofa and you're investing in one, make sure, I mean, if you're going to keep it for 10 years or, or 15 years, like that is what's sustainable. It's not chopping and changing it like a cushion cover every time it goes <coughs> in and out of fashion. So it's really kind of sticking to the the reliables and something maybe that's a bit timeless. Yeah, absolutely. Timeless. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. But just to make sure before um, you go and buy a sofa, just sit on it because I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make that they just buy off the rack or they buy from a magazine and then, you know, they get it home and they sit on it and it's not anything like what they thought it was going to mm. be. So I mm. think if you're buying it, go out and sit on it and make sure that you love it. Good. All right. Well, listen, Sinead Constein, co-founder of the interiorsproject.com and we can find you on Instagram at? Yeah, the interiors project. Wonderful. All right. Great hints and tips there uh, about all things interior. Sinead, happy new year again and thanks very much for joining us this morning on The Home Show. Thank you so much. Now, the vacant property refurbishment grant is available for people who turn a vacant house or building into their permanent home. Now, it was initially only available in regional towns and villages, but last November the grant was extended to cover all areas, but the uptake has been very poor. Dr Rory Hearn, Assistant Professor of Social Policy at Maynooth University, is here to tell us more. Happy New Year, Rory. You're very welcome back to studio. Thank you. Happy New Year, Sinead, to you and to your listeners. Now, it's very hard to keep up with all all of the grants that are being chucked around in the housing market for people to do housing any which way they want, it seems mm. to me. But this comes under the cre- the overall umbrella of Cree Conaha, which is the refurbishment of towns and villages and old properties and above the shop properties and all that stuff, which we should be repurposing and reusing. And I don't think anybody thinks that's a bad idea. Tell us a little bit about how this particular one works. If you buy one of these old, I presume, cottages, houses, townhouses that you see littering the landscape uh, Mm. across the country. Yeah, so this particular scheme um, is actually very welcome in that it does offer, um, it's got two parts to it, 30,000 
um, grant if you do up a, a vacant home. But then if you're doing up a derelict one, there's an additional 20,000. Um, so it's 50,000, which is no small amount. Um, and particularly, you know, in rural areas, it can have a significant impact. Now, someone has to own the property to uh, apply for it. They have to then... Um, do the work, basically get the work done, and then they um, they obviously apply for it, and then they have to show through. It has to be assessed by the, they apply to the local authority, and the local authority will get assessors out to see is the work done and follow through. Um, so I think it, it's a good initiative. Um, but they have to live in it. They do so have to live in it. This isn't open for kind of some local developer taking a notion about a derelict cottage and doing it up and, and turning it and flogging it on the taxpayer's book. No, I mean, no, and I think that's a good home. thing. I, yeah. I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing that these are, this is a grant available for someone to do up a derelict property or vacant property and then live in it. And there is a clawback if you sell it within 10 years or, you know, I think it's up to 10 years as a clawback and a significant clawback. So the idea is that it remains used as a home. And I think this is really important in the the context of, as listeners will be well aware, the scale of housing need. Um, but also, as you mentioned there, that the, the issues of derelict properties and vacant ones is we can see them. They are, in a sense, that blight you referred to. They, but also, um, they're hugely important for environmentally environmental sustainable development because where you have buildings already in place, um, there is a carbon inside that building and not to get too overly complicated, but essentially by by repurposing an existing building, you use less carbon, you emit less carbon emissions than if you build from scratch. And particularly, you think of the infrastructure, the wastewater, it's all there in the towns and villages and cities where buildings are. So doing up existing buildings is actually the most sustainable form of providing new housing supply. Now, we've had the repair and lease scheme, which is slightly different because that's where maybe an owner of an existing old or derelict property chooses to do it up. They get a bunch of money to do it up and they must then let it out. So so it's kind of targeting two different ends of the market. So, as I said, I don't think anybody's against all that. And yet, and yet, um, okay, the housing target now for this year is 29,000 houses throughout various whatever schemes, both build and rent and buy Mm. and all that kind of thing. On this particular scheme, which was launched in the middle of last year, it's great fanfare, and it has to be said, great taxpayer money going against it. The latest figures I could find show that just 426 uh, have been applied for and dealt with. And in some councils, you were saying that you applied through the local authority, but it's extremely uneven. So Cavan haven't refused any applications that have come to it, but you're talking now about low numbers in the low tens. Leash refused half of the applicants that came towards them. So is there a sense maybe that that people themselves or maybe even the council aren't entirely clear how and where and why this is supposed to work. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's clearly a real issue in in take-up. And we can only, I suppose, to a certain extent, uh, uh, take a a sense of estimated analysis to whether, what are the reasons behind that. And clearly there are issues. Local authorities are refusing some applicants and we don't know why that is, but they are. Um, But it is a very, very low take-up for, in contrast to the numbers of properties that we know are out there. Um, And a number of issues could be, for example, that for someone to use this grant, they have to own the property. So there's an issue if they don't, if they can't buy the vacant or derelict Mm. property, then they can't take up the grant. And there might be a lot of banks very unwilling to lend on a, in quotes, project before yeah. they know exactly what they're, you know, that they're going to fail the survey. They're not going to have a BR rating. All the stuff you'd normally do for a mortgage is going to be pretty tough. To yeah, it's a, it's a more risky project. It is more risky. It can become more expensive. You don't know what's what's there in terms of the building. So that is a really important point. And it does raise that issue of how do people access finance if banks aren't willing to lend because of for whatever reasons. And that does raise a wider issue of, you know, can the state, for example, provide lending? Um, there are mechanisms by which, you know, if we look at Barcelona, for example, they've put in place a measure whereby the local authority, if a property is vacant, they will give the owner six months to rent it out, to use it, or they buy it back at 50% of market value. And so I think we need to see more of the carrot, or sorry, more of the stick, should I say, mm-hmm. from local authority, but not just stick, because that's the wrong way of putting it. It's actually, because many of these properties 
they've gone they've been in dereliction for so long the owner isn't in a position they don't have the finance to do it up and they often don't have the interest and so there has to be an issue we have to say it is wrong to allow this level of vacancy and dereliction with this level of housing need and we have to see it it's not just property ownership this is property hoarding in reality and whether or not if an owner is not in a position to do anything with it the local authority should be CPOing compulsory purchasing Do we do enough of that in this country? I know there is a, a bit that goes on but when we hear about CPOs it tends to be because there's a road widening scheme yeah. or a bus corridor going yeah. in. Do you think that individual councils are loath to kind of go near the farmer's land or this town's, you know, maybe identifying the owner is an issue? Yeah, it's it's because it is more complex and more difficult and messy than simply just building on a greenfield site. And this is part of the issue as well that I would be critical. Government policy has been driven for the last 30 years by building on greenfield sites. Developers, that's what they like, the big developers, the big investor funds. They have no interest in dealing with vacancy or dereliction. And so we haven't seen policy really focus on this. And you go down to the local authorities, they only had a half-time position up to last year. Now they've one full-time vacant uh, vacancy officer who deals with this. What happens if that person is out on maternity leave or out sick or whatever? Who covers it? You know, there's a real issue with resourcing at local authority level. But there was no issue with resourcing the grants. I mean, there's 400 million going into this. It's 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 an enormous amount of our money. Again, it's like we don't join up the pieces to see how can this actually work. And if the local authorities aren't resourced sufficiently or or if they're not interested, some of them aren't literally interested in doing this and there's a real issue because you look at, for example, Mayo County Council Longford, they're doing really good initiatives around dereliction. For example, Mayo is doing a thing where they're matching, trying to match people who want to buy a property with uh, an owner of Mm. a vacant or derelict property. So is it just about an energy or a kind of willingness to... It's a combination of things. I think it's resourcing. It is resourcing because yes, the money's gone into the grant, but then the resourcing isn't gone into the vacant vacancy Mm. capacity in local authorities. And it's approach as well because I do think you know, we look at how will we build these, how will we do them? And I think, you know, I've made the case for a public construction company and I think a public construction company with regional offices could really tackle this vacancy and dereliction because many individuals don't have that capacity or as you say, banks won't lend them to do it. So if you had a public construction company that the local authority CPO'd the property, they did did up the property, then they could sell it at an affordable rate to a homeowner. Yeah, and we had Hugh Wallace at the top of the show kind of referencing similar sentiments on that and I think you and he would probably come from different ends of the spectrum. <laughs> so, you know, it's I've, interesting. I've heard you on this. No, he's good on this. And I, it's I, interesting that that, yeah. kind of, that is dovetailing know, towards I, the same I think, aim. I think you're right that across the board, no matter where you're coming from, people do see now and I think there's been, the positive is a shift in how we see dereliction and vacancy. Yeah. As Frank O'Connor and Jude Cherry make the point down in Cork, we, it became normalised whereas now people are seeing it and when you start seeing it, you it's, see it everywhere. It's an eyesore and then it annoys you, yeah, and then it does, you think, why going, isn't somebody doing something exactly. about it? Exactly. So hopefully that will create an energy now, that will get more. one thing that, and I've been reading your, your book, Gaffs, uh, Why No One Could Get a House and What We Can Do About It. It's been festive, seasonal reading for me over the Christmas. <laughs> Poor you. Because I'm like that. <laughs> That's very good and I'm enjoying it. But one of the things where the local authorities have been doing a great job, and I know they get slated from time to time for lots of things, but uh, over 6,000 uh, empty properties, what they call voids, were brought back in to use during 2020 and 2021. Uh, 88 million to the taxpayer, far less, it has to be said, than this, the cost of this scheme, mm. which isn't getting any traction. Uh, and I'm just wondering whether then, if they're so good at doing that, and there's now, as you say, a kind of a social push on them to do more of that, would they be better off then looking at more derelict sites that they don't own and buy them up and just reconvert them and and have an ability to do that? Or are they doing that? Yeah, they are doing it in small numbers and a number of them are doing it better than others, as I mentioned earlier, Mayo, Loud. Um, But you're right, they have tackled the issue of of avoid um, their own buildings that they own, their own local authority homes that they they own um, and have been working at those. And again, that has been more pressure. You know, policy was quite focused on that over the last number of years. So there is a thing about political will and energy 
energy and, you know, that question of where the pressure is on, where the focus Mm. is on. And we can see things done if they're resourced properly. But I think there is a real need to, I think, significantly resource either local authorities or housing associations, the not-for-profit bodies. We've seen them do some really good examples. Peter McVeary Trust. Super work, yeah. To uh, um, converting offices (laughs) into apartments. And and all of those other agencies. Yeah, Yeah. there's real potential here um, to take, like the numbers are phenomenal. Like when you look at the census showed 166,000 vacant homes. That wasn't including derelict properties. The geodirectory counted um, 30,000 derelict residential yeah. properties, an additional 30,000 commercial properties. Um, and it does raise that whole question of, I think you're right, that we have to see this, like that's 200,000 potential homes that could be homes if we put the resources and the political will into it and say, you know, it's not okay to leave property vacant or derelict when we have this housing crisis. So it's really just about joining up the dots and and getting the other elements around it. So it's not maybe enough just to launch the scheme, do the press conference, say all this money is available without putting in the back end of how people are going to do Ex- what's going to drive them into this, what is a very good scheme. Yeah, exactly. And and okay. the as I said, the point is that you can have the grant, but if you can't access the property, yeah. then if you can't, because that takes a huge amount to buy that property. And if, if it isn't even up for sale, that is an issue. So I think we no- need to look at compulsory sales orders, compulsory purchase orders. Um, the Scottish Land Commission, they have a big issue with vacancy is dereliction in Scotland as well. They recommended this these compulsory sales sales orders. Politically sensitive though, Rory, you don't have to get elected. Well, I think, I actually think though now, that the this is what I pointed made earlier, I think Irish people, their attitudes to property, and I, I make this point in the book, I think are going through a fundamental change. That this idea that you can just hold on to a number of properties because they're yours. You will hear it, you'll see it all over social media. That's my property, I can do whatever what I want with it. But on a wider level, people are saying, that's not right. You know, that you can just decide to whatever you want, be that leave it vacant or derelict Mm. when we have, you know, such a high level of housing need. And I think there's a growing acceptance that tackling vacancy and dereliction through some quite radical measures are what is needed. All right. Well, listen, uh, Dr. Rory Hearn, Assistant Professor of Social Policy at Maynooth University. Thank you for bringing us that uh, update on the vacant property refurbishment grant. We will see how it goes because we'll have a whole other set of numbers uh, this year on it. And maybe the government will hear some of your concerns. And thanks for coming in and joining us on The Home Show. Now, I mentioned at the top that we had this uh, cull of the mug press at home. (laughs) All the mugs got taken out and it was more difficult than I had thought about getting rid of the ones because we weren't looking for the cracked ones and the broken ones. It was just too many of them. What ones do you get rid of? What ones do you keep? Uh, And I've asked you to send in your suggestions for that. You can do that at 53106 and send me a picture of your favourite mug. But we thought we would have in... And this time, well, she's our expert on everything, so she might as well be our mug expert, <laughs> Neve Marr, Creative Pleasure. Director with the Journal. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year today. Lovely to be here and to talk about mugs, one of yeah. my favourite things. Is it? It you literally see. is. I is was it? giddy when you told me we were going to talk about mugs. Well, then let me start by asking you to describe your favourite mug, if you can. If that's not going to take too long and you don't have to think about it too it, much. It won't. I absolutely have a favourite mug. I think you'd be hard pushed to find anybody who doesn't. But my favourite mug was gifted to me by one of my best friends. It came in a set for myself and my husband when we got married. His smashed. So actually, when we opened it, his was in pieces and mine was still intact. And I was like, oh, well, you know, they're a pair. They come together. But I still absolutely love it. He always gets a little bit like, oh, you're still using that cup. Yeah, I wish I had mine. But it's beautiful <laughs> and it's so sentimental. And it's it's just one of those classic Big mugs can fill, you know, you, you can fit about 200 mils in it easily. Uh, it's cracked down the side now because I put it in the dishwasher, which I don't think you're supposed to do, but it's still one of my favourite mugs. I get excited when I see it in the press. Is that very pathetic of me? I do you know what? It isn't. It would have been. I would have said that's really <laughs> pathetic, Neve. before I actually had to get rid of some of my own mugs. But there is that attachment because you're looking at, OK, you went into Duns, you bought six mugs. It's no big deal, right? That's that's not the same. But if somebody has gifted it to you or it's a commemorative thing for something or belonged to your mother, there's all kinds of reasons that we do 
want to keep them even though they're mismatched they don't go with the colour of anything else yeah. oh this doesn't match anything in my yeah. kitchen but that's the thing it's kind of like warm mug warm heart I actually did a bit of research and I went on to psychology today to see why people are so connected to their mugs and it is it's exactly what you said very similar to music and songs and how it can transport you to a place the mm. same thing can be said with mugs that are in the press because you think about a place potentially you think about who gave it to you you think about a drink and it's also about coziness and comfort and the ritual of something that brings you joy every single day it's a simple thing but I see why people can get so emotionally attached and why it's so hard to get rid of them even though there's literally things spilling out of them yeah well let me ask you a controversial question then do you use do you drink tea and coffee yes I do you do. have a different mug for each one no I absolutely don't oh you've got a style is that terrible of me? No, it's all, It's actually always this one favourite mug that I have as well. I do have a beautiful set of coffee mugs which are specific for cappuccinos and things like that which are nice. But I find sometimes a set, it's hard for me to get any kind of connection to them. I want that big ugly, it's usually an mm. ugly mug is what your favourite mug is. I want that one. But yeah, I drink tea, coffee, water warmed milk I drink anything out of this <laughs> okay. absolutely All right. now we uh, have sent you shopping which is your very favourite thing to do love it uh, especially at this time of year and you have been looking at the different types of mugs I'm, I'm astonished that there are so many types because I suppose there are but to me a mug is a mug and it's they're all the same size and they have a handle on the side and mm. that but that's not the case. It was and there's the loads of different types. <laughs> there's lots of different mugs that you can go for. So um, obviously there's the classic coffee mug, which holds around eight ounces or around 200 mils of liquid. There's the travel mug, which actually I recently just bought a keep cup, the original keep cup from Home Store and more. They're a little pricey. They're $16.99, but at the same time, they bring that sustainable element, which everybody is looking for. Also a very good January thing to buy because you just feel like but you're in control of your life. See, the Keep Cups, I, and, and they're a great idea and I'm all for that and sustainability and all that. But I, I just find that whether it's the pla- whether it's the coating, the plastic on them or whatever the way they work, they don't really keep drinks terribly hot on a commute. Have you found one that does? Well, you can get more thermal ones. So you can get ones that are different. The Keep Cup is is a little bit more designed to enjoy the craft and the sensory process and the pleasure of a cup of coffee. So it does ha- it does have that durable glass coffee cup with the press fits a super lid on it. And um, whether it keeps your liquid incredibly hot for the entire commute, it kind of depends on where you're from, coming mm, from, Sinead. Mm. This is the thing. I really enjoy it because it's almost like it, it does me a dark trip, makes me feel happy. And at the same time, you're saving the planet a little bit as you go. But there are definitely ones that you can get. You can get stainless steel ones that keep it completely hot as well. I just like the look and feel of a keep cup. I like the durability of the glassware and also just don't put them in the dishwasher. Do hand wash the keep cup as well. Okay. So aside from travel mugs, which you can get in lots of different uh, types, there's also, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but the demitasse, which is... Oh, yeah, the it's just a fancy word for an espresso yeah, cup. Basically. Small little yolks that you get in French restaurants or whatever. Exactly. So kind of like 3.4 ounces, about 100 mils. It's an espresso cup. You want a thicker wall for the espresso cups because that retains the heat on them a little bit more. And if you do call it an espresso we're not going to be able to be friends anymore, unfortunately. So that's just something to... Espresso. Espresso. Right, okay. Yeah, so that's another one. And sometimes you find that the fancy coffee machines, and I don't have one. I don't have one deliberately because I overtake my coffee quotient for the day if there was one sitting in my kitchen. So I've decided not to have a coffee machine. But some of those, you can't put your favourite chunky mug underneath it. You can only put in the small little cups because they're kind of purists. That's it. And that's the thing. Like we're moving into coffee machines now, Sinead, which I feel like will be a, uh, that's a whole, a whole other conversation <laughs> as well. But yeah, no, there are those different types. I mean, you can look at the different actual ceramic, glass, stoneware, stainless steel as well. I mean, the options are endless when it comes to this, but I think you find a mug that suits you and suits your lifestyle, you're going to be laughing. So I actually, aside from finding out and doing a bit of research on mugs, I did go physically shopping and actually found a few really nice Irish options as well. If you Wonderful. Want to them. So first up, Dunn Stores can't go wrong. So ranging in price from about €1.50 from their Essentials collection to the Carolyn Donnelly Eclectic Alphabet mug. That's I gifted a gorgeous these. mug. Oh, beautiful. Mm. 
five euro for those. I actually gifted a few people that at Christmas. I mean, it's just, it's instantly personalising. It is. And what I love about it is it is stylish, but actually what appeals to me about those mugs are that it, it has a thin lip. Mm. Now, we don't want a thin lip on for the old makeup, but we do want one on a mug. And I like drinking out of China. Yes. As opposed to kind of that ceramic mm. thick builder's mug. Well, this is thing. it. Well, Carolyn Donnelly, beautiful. Also, Helen James and Duns as well. They have slogan mugs. This is another, everybody loves a slogan. Five euro for those. A couple of my favourites. Sure, you're only mighty. Who doesn't want to hear that every single day? And Cade on scale. I mean, mugs mean different things to Fantastic. different people. So Helen James has a good range as well in Dunn stores too. Next.ie have a beautiful set of four sage green. You can also get them in a deeper navy blue colour. These are Logan Reactive Glaze mugs. They're €28 Euro for a set, so they're a little bit pricier. But because of the finish on this, every single piece will be individual and it will come in in different colours and different finishes on it as well. So that's lovely if you're looking for a nice set, a little bit more of the purest. Mm. And if you want it to fit in with your aesthetic as well, Next.ie have beautiful cups as well. Another one as well. Now, this is one that kind of divides people. I love them. Very Instagrammable. The double-walled cappuccino glass sets. Oh. Would you go for a glass cup? No. Ooh. No. And I'll tell you why. Because I add milk, a tiny dot of milk to tea and coffee and I don't want to see it. I, you don't, I don't want to see it? No, I don't like the right. colour. If I drank that kind of, I don't know, a kind of black, thick coffee. Yeah. With the gitan, maybe. I'd, I'd be like, I'd be fine with it in the glass. I'm not stylish enough for glass. <laughs> oh, you are. You are. Everybody is stylish enough for glass. But speaking of keeping things warm, these are thermally insulated to keep your drinks hotter for longer while at the same time the glass remains cool to touch on the outside. 23 euro, you can get a lovely set of those on next.ie. And I also wanted to mention a few Irish designers because it's always good to plug that, like beautifully designed and produced in Ireland using materials sourced in Ireland as well. So if you go onto the designireland.ie website, there's some beautiful ceramic mugs that are there. One of my favourites is by Claire Malloy Ceramics. So 18 euro, a little bit pricier, but you're getting a one of a kind stoneware mug and it has this beautiful intricate horse design on both sides handmade on the potter's wheel I mean oh, that's what you want from a favourite mug yeah, isn't it Yeah No it absolutely is and I remember a couple of summers ago we went off to Aaron Street East down the road from Look. us here uh, to try our hand pottery <laughs> <laughs> It's nice go? to say none of anything I made will be appearing on a shelf anytime soon but they have an absolutely gorgeous range down there as well yeah. and, and you kind of I just like the feeling that you know somebody's been sitting down at a wheel making these. They didn't be, get churned out of a factory in China, you yeah, know. It's one of my New Year's resolutions. I want to try pottery in 2023. Okay. Watch well, this space. I can't think of a better place, although don't tell them you're from Newstalk. They, <laughs> might, they might fire you out of the place, never mind into the kiln. Right, Neve. thank you so much for all of that. And if you uh, folks out there have a have a favourite mug, do send it in to us and let us know uh, wh- what and why, because I think the sentimentality attached to mugs is as important as the design. Now, it'll be from mugs to sippy cups for you. You've brought in a hidden extra guest into studio. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if she's that hidden anymore, but yes, I'm Congratulations. Thank you so much. Little girl will be joining us uh, in a few months, actually, in March. So, Well, I reckon your little girl is going to have the most stylish nursery oh. that there ever was. I've been watching your Instagram posts oh, of restyling. Mm. Um, I mean, how brave of you. Are, uh, pregnancy for me is a time to flop on the sofa and sit back and let everybody else do the work. But no, you've been up ladders, you've been putting up panelling. Yes. Why? Why? <laughs> Why? That's <laughs> such a great question. I have to say, this is our first. And so I, I definitely want to preface this by saying we have a lot of time on our hands to nest and to really, you know, throw ourselves into the nursery decor design. And that's exactly what I've been doing. It is a passion project of mine, interior design in general. So I really wanted to kind of commit to that and try a few things myself. Um, I've always wanted to panel a wall, a feature wall. It didn't really matter if it was in the nursery or or if it was anywhere in the house, but I've always been a little bit remiss about whether I could actually achieve it. So I got a quote to see how much it would cost, you know, by getting somebody in. And I said, I can do that for half that. So I did. <laughs> and um, I don't know. You can go and, and look at it on my Instagram if you want, Neve underscore Mar, to see. But 
it took a lot long. I want to be completely honest. It took a lot longer than expected. There was a lot more maths involved than I expected as well. Yeah. And although I surmised it into a very short and snappy little reel on Instagram, there were a few arguments as well with my husband <laughs> and I, being completely honest. There's a few things that you need if you're considering panelling a wall. And that is, well, first off, prep, prep, prep. Prep is Absolutely everything, yeah. depending on Start what. Start with the notebook and pencil and calculator. Exactly. Well, actually, I, I gave that all. All the math side was done by my husband, to be fair. And he actually did it on his computer because he didn't write it down. He was He's very pernickety about that kind of stuff. But I think the one thing you want to do is figure out what style you want. So I wanted a very simple beading style. So I mm. went to B&Q and got that. Now, you can get... MDF wood paneling, which is more of that kind of structured, the, the heavier looking ones. But but this was quite simple. So I went and I picked up some beading from B&Q. It's already cut. And it's that's just like, easy. it's just like white deal or, or plywood. And, the, and it's cut into just maybe a strip and then you can make exactly. a square out of it or a rectangle exactly. or a data rail or whatever. Exactly. It's bead moulding. So I got the pine glass beads of wood moulding, which is three ninety five per bead. So really good value as well. And then the other things you really need to remember is the primer for your wood. You also need sandpaper. You need caulk and you need it to be decorator's caulk and not outside paint caulk, which I've fallen down that hole before. No nails glue. And then you need to look at a lot of YouTube videos, basically. (laughs) And that's what I did. I literally Mm. followed a couple of people who had done it on YouTube. And, you know, I mean, it definitely took a long time, but it was worth it in the end because it's something that we created and I think it looks great. Honestly, I it do. It does look great. I think it, looks it looks super great. professional. And the thing about beading is once it's up, then if you change your mind about the paint colour, the whole lot can be painted. It doesn't all have to come back down again. Yeah. You can just redo it or you could do even the beading in a different shade to the back wall that exactly. it's on. Yeah, now I have to tell you the whole thing all in cost us about 250 euro and about half of that we spent on the paint because we got mm. farrow and ball, we splashed out, we got sulking pink, which is a nice emulsion based, very romantic, dusty pink colour, but it's not like a very bright yeah. pink. So if we want to change it into a spare room, if we want to sell the house again, something to consider yeah. before you paint a nursery, a very bright Perfect. So what's next now for you, Neve? You're putting together a cot? Are you, you know, well, yes. <laughs> making teddy bears? <laughs> We're doing all of that. I mean, the thing is as well, I would say that don't go overboard on, on what you spend as well. We actually got our cot secondhand from my cousin who had a, a baby a couple of years ago. So anything that you can get from other people, I would highly recommend getting as long as it's Couldn't safe. I would recommend that more yeah. because A, grow, they grow out of stuff alarmingly quickly so and you have spent the money and then you, you know you're you're left with two problems which is getting the new stuff and getting rid of the old stuff so uh, beg borrow steel um i mean it won't be too far back in a generation before the bottom drawer of yeah. a dresser was used as the baby's first uh, cot so it's not the end of the world exactly. all right well listen we will have you back to talk about your ongoing um adventure mm. and <laughs> and we wish you the very best of luck and a happy new year and what a lovely way to start the new year with some great news like that. Neve Marr of Journal.ie. Thanks for coming in to Thank us today. Thank you so much, Sinead. Always a pleasure. And that is all we have time for on this, our first show of 2023. Thanks to Aoife Bean producing, Stephen McLoon, Philip Malloy was on sound uh, and we get to do it all again at eight o'clock next Saturday morning. And if there is anything you'd like us to cover and a guest you'd like us to have on, well, we're preparing our 2023 schedule. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any dilemmas, queries or questions you'd like us to get answered, do send them in to us on the home show at newstalk.com. We'll take a look at those during the week. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan, Saturday morning at 8 on News Talk.